0: Thank you for listening to the Lucy Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about us or to find other sermons and resources from us, visit our website at lucybaptist.com. So again, uh, the the scripture we'll be considering today is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And this is God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's take a moment and go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you uh, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you have so richly provided for us through your son. Lord, I pray that you would take your word today and you would put it within our hearts that we may know, have a deeper uh, realization and understanding of the hope that you have provided for us. Lord, I pray that today you would make us look more like your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, alongside being a pastor here at Lucy Baptist, I'm also a lawn care technician. And even though many non-essential businesses are closed right now, uh, lawn care is still considered essential. So um, praise God, I, I'm still I still have a job, um, but I'm spraying yards. But one thing that's changed about my job is that many people are at home. Therefore, whereas normally people are away when I service their lawn, many people are at home. and so I've had more conversations with clients uh, in the past couple weeks than normally. Um, and I'm reminded as I was studying for this passage of two, Uh, conversations that I had uh, this week. Uh, The first one was an older woman who was out walking her dog. As I was getting ready to service her yard, I was able to stop and chat with her. And she seemed very self-confident and pretty upbeat about her life, but I noticed there was a uh, a bit of a mother's worry. Um, She told me that her daughter lives in New York, and even though she hasn't been sick or or gotten sickness, she's quarantined in her apartment for for an indefinite amount of time. And so um, as we ended the conversation, uh, she continued walking her dog, and I still was able to see that that worry. Um, but another conversation happened when I rang the doorbell of a, a rather fancy house in West Germantown, and uh, it happened so quickly, it's hard to even recount it. A middle-aged man, he poked his head out. He asked me what I was doing, and he seemed kind of rushed, almost even paranoid, and uh, if the, the voice wasn't enough to tell me that, the mask that he was wearing was. He seemed concerned, and I, I told him, rest, rest assured, I'm just here to spray your lawn, just want to let you know I'm here. And I, I told him that he had some packages at his door, and before I could walk down the steps, he had grabbed his pa- packages and shut the door. This past month, uh, these emotions have been easy to come by for a lot of people. Anxiety, fear, Worry, confusion, anger, grief. Maybe these are some of the emotions you've experienced this past week. And all of these emotions seem justifiable, right? I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, as I was deciding what text to preach, I asked my wife uh, what text she would pick. I was having trouble landing uh, a text to, to preach, And uh, so I asked her, you know, what, what text would she choose? And she simply responded without missing a beat. Duh, that's easy. Romans 5. Okay. So as I began to read this text, Paul got up in my face almost as if to say, Blake, don't you realize that the one emotion that is characteristic for Christians during suffering is joy? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And we see that in verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. Well, I confess to you this morning that I wouldn't label the past several weeks as being very joyful. And so God has helped me greatly through His Word in Romans 5 this week. But there is so much more to unpack in this text. So this morning I want us to dig deep and see how the gospel changes our lives and also to see how hope plays a big role in this endeavor. So our text today has the aim of telling us four big ways the gospel changes our lives. It does so by by describing the fruit of our justification. And my aim this morning is to encourage all of us to have a gospel vision for our relationship with God, our future in Christ, and our present day-to-day lives. So the gospel changes everything about our lives, and it provides for us a rock-solid foundation upon which our lives are built. With that, let's dive into our text and look at the first fruit of our justification. So I encourage you, if you're taking notes, our first point is, because we have been justified, we have peace with God. We see that right there in the first verse of our text. But notice the very first word, therefore. This points us back to what Paul has been saying throughout the letter up to this point. Paul is summarizing the argument that he's been making all the way since chapter 1. And we see that beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul declares that, "...for the wrath of God has revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men." a pretty weighty charge. And he continues to unpack that charge throughout chapter 1. And by the end of chapter 2, he declares that both Jews and Gentiles are all unrighteous. And what he means by that is everyone. He sums it up in chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, saying this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one, everyone, no one, no one is righteous. And after this comment, he begins to declare that our entire being is infected with sin, as if maybe we could uh, eradicate it on our own. He, he leaves us with no hope, or so it seems. But in, in chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, Paul gives us the good news He says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the good news. Paul switches from declaring that all people have fallen short of God's glory and stand guilty before him to now declaring that the solution for our sin and guilt is none other than Jesus. He alone can pardon sin and make us innocent before a holy God. And that is what Paul means by justification. It means that we are declared to be innocent and righteous before God because of what Christ has done. And so this is Paul's argument as he's continuing continuing it. Now in chapter 4, he he continues his argument by recounting a story um, from Scripture. He recounts the story of Abraham. And how his faith, Abraham's faith, in the promises of God were counted to him as righteous. Abraham then is a prototype of how all people are justified before God. Namely, by faith in Christ. Justification then is to be received as a gift by faith. All those who have put their faith in Christ's redemptive work stand before God justified. And this major theme is the backdrop of everything that's about to follow in our text. Since believers are justified before God, we now have peace with him. Now, you might be asking yourself, why do I need peace with God? I didn't think he was upset with me. Well, this is where it's helpful to remind ourselves of Paul's argument. Because remember, in chapter 1, Paul declared, with the first verse that I I I read verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. That's war language. Paul continues it um, in chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. He describes it this way. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hostile. That is, that's also war language. And it's exactly right. Dear friend, there is no neutral ground in this life. You are either an enemy of God or you're his friend. And you may not realize it, um, but everyone who is far from Christ, who doesn't have a relationship with him, they're at war with God. That's how scripture defines their state. We are enemies of God, and we desperately need someone to mediate a peace treaty between us and God. And praise God, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. Because of his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection, he alone is the only mediator that can end the war between God and man. He's the only one that can justify us before a holy God. And because of what Christ has done, we stand before a holy God as war criminals and receive a favorable verdict, not guilty. That's a piece you can rest your head on at night. That's what's meant by peace with God. And if you don't understand Paul's argument, you, you gloss over it. But dear friends, if we repent of our sin and trust it in Jesus, we have the greatest peace that this world can know. Peace with the holy God. So because we've been justified through Christ's saving work, we have peace with him. But secondly, notice that because we have been justified, we have access to God. It's one thing to have peace uh, with someone. It's another thing to have a relationship with them. And praise God, uh, he, we don't just have peace with him, we also have access. So the second fruit of justification that we see is this access. Through what Christ has done in working out our salvation, we have access to God. And we see that beginning in, in verse 2. So, but to understand the gravity of this statement, it's helpful to remember um, some of the story throughout Scripture. You see in Genesis 3, we read that Adam and Eve... They were thrust out of the Garden of Eden, Eden, away from the presence of God. Because they sinned, they no longer had access to God. And throughout the Old Testament, we read how God dwelled with his people, but he did so in a limited way. Although people, all people could draw near to God at the temple, the only person that could truly be in God's presence was the high priest and only on the Day of Atonement. But through Christ, we have access to God. It's full and it's free. In Matthew 27, 51, just as Jesus was dying on the cross, we read that, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split it's an odd detail. Why would Matthew record that the temple curtain was torn in two? Well, it's to show that because of what Christ has done, believers now have access to God. So the same curtain that withheld access from people, because of what Christ has done, we now have access to God. So, Paul brings these ideas of peace with God and access before uh, God together in other places in Scripture. One of them is in Ephesians 2, verses 17 through 18. He, He says this, and he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice the language. Christ came, he preached peace. To those who were far, far off, peace to those who were near. And because of that peace, through, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So notice back in our text in Romans 5, verse 2, Through him we have also obtained access. But then notice, it's by faith into this grace in which we stand. Reminds me of another passage in Ephesians. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So back in Romans, we see something similar happening. We see we are justified before God by having faith in Christ. That's Paul's argument. And we, by faith then, we're standing on grace. You, did you catch that? In our text, We uh, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's it's figurative language, almost as if grace is a a field in which we're standing in or a, a state or a place in which we're standing in. And that's exactly right. But what's the point of including grace? Well, it's to show that salvation is not something we accomplish. We do not stand upon our good works, but rather we stand on Christ's good works. We stand on His finished work. And we stand in this grace. The verb is in the, uh, the perfect tense. And all that means is that it's a completed action with present results. The completed action is that Christ has justified us because of what he's done. And because he is justified, because we've been justified, we stand on God's grace. The language here is similar to what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. As Christians, all of our lives are built on the foundation of the gospel. All of our life, everything that we do is built, it stands on this gospel. It stands on God's grace. It is because of this foundation we not only have peace with God, but access to Him. So not only does justification change our relationship with God, it also changes the way we hope for the future. So notice with me the third point that we see, the third fruit, because we have been justified, we rejoice in hope. So we see that continuing in verse two. So that's the next thing we begin to see is because we've been justified, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So let's take those words one by one and try to unpack what Paul and, and through Paul, of course, what God is telling us this morning. So first, we see that we are to rejoice. This is one of Paul's favorite words. Um, apart from the, the book of James in his letter, using it twice, Paul exclusively uses this in his letters about 50 times. It has the meaning of boasting or to take pride in something. Uh, one lexicon I, I looked at actually said brag. It's almost this idea of bragging even. And uh, a good place to see how Paul uses this word is in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. We see where you can brag about um, worldly things or you can brag about what God does. And so we see that uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, um, starting in verse 27, it says this, but God... Chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So, that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, there are two ways of boasting in this text. First, we see that people can boast in things that show off their wisdom, their strength, or maybe their social standing. We've seen this before in our own lives. Ask anyone about their job, or their family, or a hobby, or maybe where they went to college, and you'll often find something that they can boast about. We are all people who love to rejoice in things that we care about, boast in things that bring us joy. But here we see how Paul turns the word and declares that his boast is in Christ. His boast is in God. So whereas some people will trust in their wisdom for salvation, Paul says, Christ is my wisdom. I boast in him. Some trust in the works of their hands for righteousness Paul says, Christ is my righteousness. I boast in Him. Some trust in their social standing to merit salvation. So some people say, my grandmother was a great Baptist and she prayed for me. Or I come from a long line of, of Methodists. And Paul simply says, I boast is Christ. I boast in knowing Him. Dear friends, let's live live to the full. But the only thing we can boast before the Lord about is Christ in His finished work. All the good that we have is from God, and our supreme joy is only to be found in Him. The gospel changes where we place our supreme joy. But next, notice the word hope. So we rejoice in hope. As David and Hunter um, has said before in the last couple of weeks, hope in Scripture is always a rock solid confidence in God's promises. What God says, He does, always. We all know people who make promises but rarely keep them. And we probably know some people who are really good at keeping their promises. But I guarantee you, Christ is better. He always keeps His promises. He is more sure. Truly, His saying is His doing. And one example where we see this hope is found in Romans chapter 4. So if you're looking at your Bible, um, go up to starting in verse 18 of chapter 4, and we'll see where Paul uses the life of Abraham and the promise that God would give him a son and make him the father of many nations, even in his old age. So starting in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, In hope he, that is Abraham, believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham was totally convinced that God would do exactly what he said. God never disappoints. He never fails. Because God always keeps his promises, our future in Christ is beaming with brightness. We we look to God's future or we look to our future and we see the promises of God one day being realized. We look forward with gospel hope, knowing that God is working all things together for our good. And at the end of our lives, we will see Christ face to face. And that is our supreme glory. And I believe that's what Paul is getting at when he says we hope, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. One of my favorite verses in all of the scriptures is First John chapter 3. Starting in verse 2, John says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Hope prepares us for heaven by making us look more like Christ. Christians hope for future glory because that is when we'll see Christ face to face transformed into his likeness. It is then that faith becomes sight. It is then that we'll no longer hope for that which we do not now see, but our hope will be fully realized as we stand on the promises of God for all of eternity, beholding Christ. That's a glorious future, is it not? And for Christians, that is our greatest longing and our deepest hope. And so with all this in mind, let's look at that final fruit of justification that is in our passage, the one that uh, maybe convicted me the most. Because we have been justified, we rejoice in suffering. We see that starting in verse 3, and we continue out to verse 5. So this is where Paul begins to get in our face. It's one thing to talk about heaven and future glory, um, but it's a lot messier to talk about suffering uh, that we wake up to each and every day. Our society has radically been turned upside down within the past month. How on earth can anyone have joy? Often we hear the the phrase, he is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Well, to turn that phrase on its head, I think this is precisely where heavenly mindedness brings about a whole lot of earthly good. Because we have been justified, Christians can now rejoice in our suffering, so to understand this logic, we need to unpack the rest of the argument in the, in the following verses. So first, it must be said that this word suffering here describes everything in, in the New Testament from end-time tribulation all the way to day-to-day suffering. It's kind of a catch-all. And because of Paul's usage here, I think in the general sense, it could it catch everything from day-to-day suffering to even persecution. And so no doubt, I think Paul had this in mind when he was writing to the Romans. But why can we rejoice in that? Well, Paul continues his thought by writing that we know suffering produces endurance. Endurance means that it's it's the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. I think a wonderful example of this is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. 36. Dear friends, when you and I embrace suffering with gospel hope, it produces a silent, unwavering patience in our lives. So every day that we face sickness, be it COVID-19 or cancer, death of a loved one, poverty, loneliness, fear, anxiety, confusion, anger, let's face those realities with gospel promises, knowing that we are secure in Christ, And that not even death, sin, or suffering could separate us from His love. Meditate on the gospel. That is what produces endurance. Because we've been justified, suffering does that in our lives. And so as we face the suffering with gospel hope, it produces that endurance. And following Paul's logic, as we endure, it produces character. It's the idea of proven character. So when we face suffering with gospel hope, it proves gospel character. That is what Jesus was talking about in his parable of the soils. In Luke 18, or I'm sorry, Luke 8, verse 15, he says this. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Part of that fruit... That Christian's bear is a gospel character that permeates our lives. We're not shaken by suffering because Christ is for us. We take his promises and face suffering head on. And he holds us fast during trials. Finally, as suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, we see that character fuels our hope. The success of standing firmly on the gospel in the face of suffering promotes and builds up our hope in God. As we come full circle, we realize that suffering produce, or, uh, proves God's love for us. It's during the times that we are weak, we begin to see Christ's strength and the beauty of his promise. This was certainly Paul's testimony. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says this, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then he continues in chapter 12, verses 9 through 10 to say this. But he, that is God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Dear friends, when we are weak, it displays the strength of our gospel hope, which is none other than the surety of God's promises. Far from indicating the absence of God's love, suffering provides ample opportunity of God's love being displayed. It is His love that holds us fast, and keeps us stable during life's toughest times. And that's where we head next. Back in, in Romans 5, we see that Paul continues his argument to say that hope does not put us to shame. Um, a better translation may read, does not disappoint. Maybe your translation says that. That's a clear meaning of the word. It has the idea of what Paul's getting at, rather, is that this hope that we have, it does not disappoint. We can follow it through to the end. And we will not be disappointed. Well, recently, if you've put your hope in the stock market, um, well, by now, you most likely are severely disappointed. I saw um, one person on a social media website that shared a graph of his stock in Delta Airlines. It looked like his money jumped off a very, very tall cliff. He was, to say the least, disappointed. But in Christ, our hope will not result in disappointment. Paul hashes this hope out really clearly in Romans 8, in the passage we looked at last week. In verse 31, Paul writes this What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's point if God is our friend, there is no enemy we need to fear. If God has already given us His most prized possession, His Son, how much more will He give us all other good things? God is for us. What can suffering do? That's the hope that will not disappoint. Because remember, God's saying is His doing. Our hope is only as good as what it's based on. Since it's based on the definite work of Christ, how God has acted to secure our salvation in Christ... We are golden. Whatever suffering this life has to offer, we can continually look to Christ, who is our hope in life and death. Finally, Paul brings everything full circle. Why can we have this gospel hope? Well, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And specifically, it's his saving love towards us. Um, So in one sense, uh, that's just another way to say that we've been justified. Um, So, the love of God is not necessarily our love to God, but rather, Paul has in mind God's love towards us. And uh, the context shows uh, that that's what Paul's thinking. So, considering the following verses, starting in verse 6, Paul says, "...for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die." But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God shows His love by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. Our hope is secure in the same way that our salvation is secure. It's all built and accomplished by what Christ has done. I don't know what's going to come this week. And for many of you uh, that are tuned in, suffering and grief uh, has already been a theme in your life. I doubt for any one of us that it took a pandemic to introduce grief and, and pain into our lives and suffering. But in all our suffering, look to the gospel. Look to Christ, who is one salvation on our behalf. who is the perfect mediator, who has drawn up the peace treaty between us and God. Look to His perfect salvation. See His wonderful love. Consider His precious promises. Let us go to Him in prayer, asking for patient endurance for each and every step this week. May He strengthen our hope during this challenging time. And may we realize that every day as we wake up and adorn ourselves with gospel hope to face the day to come, may we realize that this will not disappoint, but rather we will grow in our endurance, that God will grow us in our gospel character, and that he'll grow us in our hope. And little by little each day, we'll look more and more like Jesus who endured all suffering to his appointed end on the cross. So I'll end with another place where Paul strings many of these concepts together. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 sums up our salvation and our future hope so well. Paul says this But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you found this message helpful, check us out at lucybaptist.com where you can find other resources or learn more about our church. We hope and pray that this message has helped you grow in your knowledge of God and in your relationship with Him.